Uh, well, good evening. My name is Naman. For, for those of you who I haven't been able to meet yet, um, I am the newest member on staff at City Reformed. And, and I realize I could just keep saying that until they, they hire somebody new. So it could, it could be like two years. I could still say I'm the newest, newest member on staff. But uh, I am here as uh, my official title is the Pastoral Ministry Assistant, and that's just a fancy term for a guy who's pursuing ordination, uh, but also uh, doing some ministry through the CCO at Carnegie Mellon University. So uh, it is my distinct privilege to be sharing with you the Word of God this evening, uh, which comes from this passage in Philippians. Uh, we had a little bit of a hiatus from the evening service the past two Sundays just because of some scheduling things that we had going on. And so we're, we're glad to be back tonight. And as we sit here on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I was reflecting and praying and, and meditating on, on what, what could we share, what could we uh, reflect on as we enter into this holiday of Thanksgiving. And as I was kind of scouring different texts related to thanks and giving thanks, the one common theme that I had realized is that any time the Bible talks about Thanksgiving, it is actually a, uh, a result or an outward display of the joy and the love and grace that we find in the gospel. And so more than just the how to give thanks, uh, Paul especially and, and many different biblical authors would, would talk about Thanksgiving in a way as, as a result of what we have witnessed in Jesus Christ himself. So it was kind of tricky to to find a passage on Thanksgiving, I landed on this one in Philippians. Uh, Philippians, this was a, uh, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, one of the first churches that he had established in Europe. Um, and this was a, a pretty encouraging source uh, for Paul um, in his ministry. Like the, the church was doing well, the people didn't have too many problems, so this entire letter it's just uh, a note of encouragement, some, some things to be mindful of. And, and in, the, in these closing verses of the book, he exhorts them in this way. Let me read for you uh, the passage for tonight. And as we traditionally do, if you would respond at the end, uh, with thanks be to God. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, amen. Um, so as we look, about, look at this passage, we'll look um, kind of at three things that I, that I notice as we... Uh, read through it. At first is what I'm going to be calling the supernatural imperatives, the supernatural commands that Paul gives. Secondly is the practical imperatives, the things that he, he tells us to do in the, in the day-to-day. And lastly, the, re, the result of it all. What, what is the picture of, of practicing these imperatives? So the supernatural imperatives, the practical ones, and the results of them all. So we'll start with the supernatural imperatives. And to kind of give further uh, background on, on the setting of this letter and, and what Paul is going through. He's, he's writing this letter to the church of Philippi. They're doing great. It's, it's primarily a source of, uh, of encouragement for him. And also he's, he's sending, writing this letter in encouragement. But we also have to take note that Paul is writing this letter from jail. He's imprisoned. He's kind of entering into the tail end of his ministry, which culminated in, in his martyrdom, in, in, in the end of his life, um, being persecuted for what he believed the most. And so... As he's sitting in this jail cell, this, these are the words that he writes. Rejoice in the Lord always. 
So we'll start with these, what I'm going to call supernatural imperatives, starting from verse 4. Rejoice in, the, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So the first imperative that we see, see there is rejoice. And Paul repeats himself. He says it again. Again, I will say rejoice. And we know that any time an author does that, he really wants us to pay attention. It's pretty important what he wants us to do there. Joy, actually, in itself, is mentioned 16 times in this short letter, in this four-chapter letter. And this is the third time that he uses this command to rejoice to the church in Philippi. And he repeats it twice here. Rejoice in the Lord always. No loopholes, no excuses, no, no kind of contingent factors of it. But find your joy in the Lord and do it all the time, regardless of your circumstances. Rejoicing in the, in the Lord for Paul was, was a necessity and not just a luxury. And one thing that I wanted to point out here, that there is a clear and poignant difference in, in Paul's time, but also in our time today, between joy and happiness. Joy and happiness. There's a difference there. Paul is not just saying, don't worry, be happy. Be happy all the time. But he's saying, rejoice in the Lord. As Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Happiness to Paul was external, temporal, dependent on circumstances, dependent on things that they could acquire so that when those things weren't acquired, when those things weren't achieved, there was no happiness. But joy is issued from the very nature of God, separate from circumstances, separate from the external factors, separate from contingent on this or that, A, B, or C. But rejoicing in the Lord laid on the very foundation of the nature of God himself. Uh, I was reading through some, some really interesting articles, uh, and, I, and I stumbled upon an article uh, that talked about sort of this industrial boom in Detroit when, when Henry Ford and, and, the, and the car boom was happening. And one of the things that really set Henry Ford apart from the competition was his use of diamond cutters in, in the industry, of cutting material. And diamond, as, as we know now, is kind of nature's hardest substance. And so Henry Ford was actually able to acquire this material and use it in a way that was very, was very helpful in his industry. So when we think about diamonds, we probably think about jewelry or gems or rings and things like that. But he was able to use this material for the benefit of his good, a material that was the most durable that he, that he at least known to man at that time. Um, and so when we think about the durability of the material, the durability contingent upon nothing else but how strong it is, we think of why it was so successful for him. Could you imagine saws that were made out of wood, wood trying to cut metal? And even more so to when diamonds are used in a jewelry context, we know that diamonds very popularly are used to symbolize uh, for engagement rings, to, to convey this this show of durability, this commitment that I am making to you, that it can withstand the tests of time and, and all these temptations, I will remain faithful to you. Could you imagine a ring made out of styrofoam? What kind of picture that would send? This durability, this joy that, that Paul is commanding the Philipp Philippian church to have, it has that picture in mind, this the, the one that stands the test of time, the one that stands the test of circumstances, of persecution, of being in jail, of, of hard times. A joy that is not rooted in the happiness of attaining certain qualities or, or acquisitions 
or anything else external, but a joy that is rooted in the Lord himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. The second imperative, the second supernatural imperative that we see there in verse 5, is let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Uh, This word could also be translated to say reasonableness or gentleness or softness or your moderation. Let your moderation be known to everyone. Uh, Essentially, Paul is warning against sort of an unduly rigorous um, paying attention to unimportant matters, things that didn't really matter and, and kind of unnecessarily holding on to those things. But learning how to be flexible, um, learning how to be uh, reasonable and gentle to those around us, especially in the midst of hard times, especially in the midst of extenuating circumstances. And this is very closely tied with joy. It's, it's sort of an outward evidence of joy in the Lord itself. Uh, it introduces a relational quality that genuine rejoicing produces. When we are able to truly rejoice in the Lord, our outward demeanor and disposition is, is being reasonable with everyone else around us. We can interact with others uh, in a reasonable nature when we are rejoicing in Christ. And and Paul roots uh, this picture of gentleness, of reasonableness, in Jesus himself. Uh, A a couple weeks back, the last time that I preached, I preached from Matthew 11. um, Come to me, all you ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle is the same word that Christ uses to describe himself in that context. Or as famously known from earlier in the book, Philippians 2, 6, for Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, uh, a demeanor that doesn't seek or strive after uh, this high-perched throne that he could have, that Christ very well could have, uh, but he counted, did not account, count equality with God, something to be grasped. Uh, showing this to even those who persecute you, Showing reasonableness and gentleness and moderation and a soft demeanor to those who persecute you. Uh, And as I thought about this a little more too, I I realized that there is a difference also between, just as there was between happiness and joy, but sort of an even-keeledness, an even-keeled nature and reasonableness and soft. And an illustration that I thought of was, uh, and this might resonate well with a lot of Pittsburgh fans, is when you think of Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New England Patriots, A lot of people think of him and the sort of inexpressive quality about him that he has. His team could have just won the Super Bowl, or his team could have just uh, lost to a team that was 0-16, and he'll have the same dead look on his face, hands in his pocket, cut-off hoodie. That's even keelness. You never really know what he's talking about. But when when we think about reasonableness, when we think about softness, again, Pittsburgh people might attune well to Mr. Rogers. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers myself, even when I was in New York at the time. And I remember thinking, when I, when I watched the man, he just has a really soft tone in his voice. He, he invites you in. You feel like you're sitting in the room with him. And, and when you, if you watch the show, he could be talking to kids about, hey, don't be scared when you get a haircut. Or he could be talking about divorce or war. And he'll have the same demeanor, same posture, same gentleness about him. So there's a difference between just being even keeled in nature, but also having a reasonable gentleness about you as you relate to others. So when we think about rejoicing in the Lord, when we think about being reasonable, why I'm calling these the supernatural imperatives is that they're all, they're both reliant on Christ himself. We can't do these things apart from knowing Jesus. 
There's no way that we can have genuine joy that withstands extenuating circumstances and trials in our life. There's no way that we can be reasonable to those that irk us or persecute us or give us a hard time if we don't reflect on the personhood and nature of Jesus himself. And that's what Paul is alluding to here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be reasonable with those around you as Christ has done for you. As, as we move on to some of the practical things, practical imperatives that Paul is talking about as well, there is a, a theme that Paul is, is trying to speak against to the church, uh, and we see it in the very next verse, uh, in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And anxiety, for, whether it's for the church uh, in the ancient Near East or whether it's for us today, is a very prevalent issue. Um, just to kind of quote you some statistics that I was researching this week. The most common mental illness in the, in the United States in adults ages 18 and over today is anxiety. The most common one. Almost 20% of our population suffers from it. That's 65 million people if you uh, account for the total popu- population of the U.S. But only 37% of those 65 million receive treatment for it. That means 41 people... 41 million people in the United States go untreated for anxiety. And it's closely linked with depression. Those who have been known to show signs of anxiety, 50% of them will will also exhibit signs of depression. And so it'll be displayed in ways of generalized anxiety disorder, panic attacks, specific phobias, OCD, PTSD, whatever, what have you. But also it can co-occur with things like bipolar disorder, eating disorder, sleep disorders, Substance abuse, ADHD, chronic pain, chronic physical pain. Um, And so as we think about anxiety, it's just as prevalent as it is today as it was back then. And so I want to ask us, what are the things and sources of anxiety for us today? How are the words of Paul to rejoice and to be reasonable speaking to us even now as as we sit in these pews? Uh, And I want to help us practice through some very practical elements of, of what I'm calling this practical imperative of to not being anxious because it's, it's much easier said than done, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything. And so three helpful questions I want to ask is, first, what is it? Identify what it is. What is the source of your anxiety? How does it show up in your life? And so, uh, or even simply put, why do you worry? Is it about money? Are you kind of living month to month, paycheck to paycheck, having a hard time paying your bills? Is it with your work? Do you have this huge project or deadline coming up that's causing you stress? Is it relationships? Is it your marriage? Is it some things that have been going on that have been a chronic issue coming up? Now, for those of us that are parents, is it your children? Is it the way that you think that they will, how they'll turn out, who they'll get involved with, what friends they'll make? What kind of person they'll be when they grow up? This spreading, this fear, this paranoia. What is the source of your anxiety? Can you name it? And then as we move on to it, evaluate how do you respond to your anxiety? What are the, what are the coping mechanisms that you have? Um, it was funny, we were, as we were getting ready for the, uh, the, the move in the office this past week, we were packing up some things and uh, and Joseph, uh, just to kind of call him out, was, was in charge of playing music. 
And I, I, I say that oftentimes you can tell a lot about a person when you ask them to play music and then you listen to what they play. Um, and so people were kind of complaining about what he was playing. And so he asked me, Naman, what, what music would you play? What, what's on your Spotify playlist? And I was like, well, that's a really bad indicator because I have a two-year-old. And the only things you'll find on there are the Moana soundtrack, the Frozen soundtrack, uh, Baby Shark. Uh, but one of those songs that's been constantly in the loop in my head these past uh, couple of months that we've been here is uh, the song Akuna Matata from The Lion King. And you, you may all know it. Uh, and it's, it's popularized around the Swahili phrase, akuna matata, is, it means no worries, no problems. And when we think about our anxieties, when we think about the sources of them, that's it's a very popular way to think about it, akuna matata, or whatever, or YOLO, or whatever popular modern phrase that you want to deal with today is, well, it, it's okay. Well, let's kind of leave it off to the side. Let's, let's let future Naman worry about that. Um, indifference is different than rejoice, rejoicing. Another way we can do it is actually a very popular one amongst Christians is to say, well, God is in control. God is sovereign. And while theologically orthodox and true, uh, we don't want to label God's sovereignty as a means of just brushing over our, our anxiety. If you were to actually read over a lot of Psalms, it seems like the very source of anxiety is God's sovereignty. Where things are going on, where war is happening, where despair is all around you, and you know that God is sovereign, but still nothing is being done about it, seemingly. Evaluate how you respond to your anxiety. Do you try to escape from it? Do you brush it over? Do you theologize? And lastly, observe the fruit of your anxiety. How does that play out in your life? Oftentimes, if not dealt in a healthy way, can result in irritability, Mindless fear and constant worry, lack of sleep, uh, obsession and addictive personalities can, can struggle with uh, anxiety because they, they just want to substitute their, their feeling of being anxious to, to something else and they get addicted to other things. Escapism. So as we think about anxiety, what it is, um, how we respond to it, uh, and the fruit of it, I want to keep these verses in mind. Do not be anxious. And how do we do that? First of all, is to rejoice. Secondly, is to be reasonable. And thirdly, as we move on, as Paul tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but, directly related to that command, but, and everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul tells us to pray and to be thankful uh, to God. And this is a very powerful, practical imperative that he's listing here, uh, because pr in prayer, anxiety is resolved by trust in God. Do we trust God to actually answer our prayers? Do we trust God to answer our supplications? Giving thanks for the numerous things that he has already provided for us puts into perspective who he is and who we are who we are as created beings and who he is as the creator of the universe. It gives us humility. Thankfulness is the posture of grace. And a lack of thanksgiving is actually, as one commentator put, the first step towards idolatry, the first step towards prioritizing other things more than Christ himself. Um, as after the sermon uh, and after we pray, we're going to be taking communion and 
the Eucharist, when we think about it, actually the Greek word for Thanksgiving in this passage, I don't like to, to bring up the Greek all that often, but I thought it was very, very, very interesting to do so because the Greek word for Thanksgiving in this passage is Eucharistias, the same word that we derive from the Eucharist, that we derive from the Lord's Supper. And we break down that word even further. Eucharist means good, gracious offering. Good and gracious offering. So when we think about being thankful, uh, it's no surprise here that Paul does the same thing that he did with joy and the same thing that he did with gentleness is to root it back in Jesus. That the only way that we can be thankful, that the only way that we can combat anxiety is to look at Jesus himself. It's to look and meditate on the good and well-gracious offering that he has bestowed upon us in his body and his blood. Rejoice, be gentle, do not be anxious, and everything pray and give thanksgiving, all in what Christ has done for us. When we think about any one of those four commands, any one of those, whether it be supernatural, practical, imperatives, it seems like a tall order. It seems impossible. And yes, it is. For us to try to do so, it would be impossible and we would fail every time. But when rooted in Christ Jesus himself, we have hope. We have trust in the Lord. We have humility in knowing that God is the one who is responsible for joy and reasonableness and a lack of anxiety and thanksgiving in our hearts. And so lastly, the result of it all. Verse 7, if you read with me again there, is... And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Pretty simply put, if you do all of these things, you will have the very peace of God. The very anti-picture of anxiety that we're looking for. Those who rejoice in the Lord will be receptive to the peace of God. And in Paul's understanding, in the life of the Holy Spirit, peace and joy always go together. They're the fruits of the Spirit, and when he talks about joy, he talks about peace and, and vice versa. This peace that surpasses all knowledge, way beyond anything we can foresee or know, even today. So it offers humility. It offers something that we know that we can't do ourselves. And a peace that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The Hebrew word, or the Hebrew connotation for heart, all throughout the Old Testament, was the very center of one's being. So when Paul offers that your heart will be guarded, he's saying that your very life, your very essence, everything that you are will be guarded. Where and in who? In Christ Jesus. The utmost security. So actually the result of these imperatives, of rejoicing, of being reasonable, of not being anxious, and of praying and giving thanks, the result of all of these things is actually the source of it, is getting more of Jesus, getting more of Christ. Paul flips that on his head. He's not saying do these things and you will have the peace of God, but reflect on the goodness and the thanksgiving that is Christ's death and resurrection, and you will be given this peace of God. Um, one minor thing that I want to go back, uh, but I thought it was very poignant, is, um, is also in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That phrase, the Lord is at hand, and to wrap up things here is, what does God say about himself? Who is presented here? And so for Paul, the most effective thing that we can ask for, like we said, is Christ himself, is God himself. So in turn, the most effective thing that Paul can do to encourage the Philippian church is to say that the source of it all, Jesus Christ, is near. 
He is at hand. He is coming back. There's a lot of implications of this, of the coming judgment and, and of Christ's return. But also for Paul in his personal and immediate context in jail, about ready to face his own death, he knows that God is at hand. So that any sort of anxiety or fear that he may feel at that moment um, is dissipated. Knowing that he has Christ himself. The Lord is near. So as we think about Thanksgiving, as we think about maybe going home or visiting family, maybe that is a bit of a source of anxiety for you. Or if we think through those questions again of what those sources of anxiety are for our lives and how we respond to them and how they display fruit in our lives, I want us to remember that, yes, we can remember these four practical things to do, imperatives that Paul gives us, but more importantly, to know and understand that Paul meant to root all of these things, not just as a result by doing all these things, but the source of it all in Jesus himself. So we'll remember that as we listen, but we'll remember that as we take the communion, the Eucharist, and as we remember that to give thanks, not only just in this season, but in our lives as well. Would you pray with me?